Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. My name is Jean. I am an alcoholic. I have been sober since June 11, 1997 was my last drink. I grew up perfect, normal little family that, you know, that people have that image of, right? However, I grew up seeing people drink every day. When I first started drinking, I was young, I was 13, and alcohol became a problem for me immediately. I was a runaway by the age of 15. My mom started trying to control me and telling me what to do. I don't like to be told what to do. I haven't met many alcoholics that do. I dropped out of high school. I was a problem child. Nobody knew what to do with me. I remember a therapist told me, they said, Jean, you're, you're not the problem. Your parents are. Your parents are alcoholic. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? And she said, go back to school, get your high school diploma, and then you can do whatever you want with your life. You can live your life any way you want. I'm like, okay. Got my high school diploma, and the day I graduated, I pretty much moved out. I was gone. I consumed alcohol on a regular basis. I was drinking about a fifth every other day. I was eating bologna sandwiches and popcorn just to survive. I was working three jobs just so I could drink. That was my existence for quite some time. I never equated that alcohol was the problem in my life. I always blamed everybody else for all the problems that were happening in my life. Even though I had enough evidence in front of me to say, this might be a problem for you, the solution was never to quit drinking. It was always to find another solution. I was a habitual drunk driver. My last drunk driving, I was looking at many felonies. I was looking at prison time. My friend bailed me out of jail. He says, what are you going to do? I says, let's go to the bar and think about it. Because that was the solution to all my problems. Everything was unraveling and I couldn't, I couldn't control it. I couldn't reel it in at all. And I had friends and people that were, you know, sober. And I called them. I said, what do I do? They said, go to a meeting. That was my aha moment. And my life changed at that point. I know the loneliness of this disease. I know the isolation of it. I know the lies that come along with it. I didn't know there was another way to live my life until I came in and somebody said, hey, try this. Let's see if this works for you. And it was putting the drink down and trying a different way to live my life. And I did that. I have yet to pick up a drink. You know, my experience was I didn't have to go back out to prove I was an alcoholic. I knew I was an alcoholic. You know, today the drink is no longer the problem for me. I don't have, that problem has been removed from me. You know, I, I consider myself recovered. You've just heard from Jean Cummings, a recovered alcoholic who's coached many people through alcoholism. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call podcast. I'm Dr. Asha Shahjahan. Our goal is to help you and your family live smarter and healthier lives. Today we're talking about alcoholism. I've seen so many people struggling with alcohol since the pandemic started. I'm consistently seeing people that are finding it harder and harder to stop. So joining us today is Dr. Jeffrey Ganay, the Program Director of Psychiatry at Beaumont Health and the Chief Medical Officer at Easter Seals. Dr. Ganay, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure, thank you for having me. I've been seeing so much alcoholism in my clinic, much more than ever before. I think maybe I might have had like one or two in my practice that I was aware of. And probably in the last year, the number of people that are reporting alcohol use has risen significantly just personally in my own practice. And I know that looking at the data in, in the United States, it, it seems like 
people are drinking a lot more. There's a lot more heavy drinking, and then there's a lot more alcoholism. I think um, it was reported that there was about a 21% increase during the pandemic of excessive drinking, uh, such as binge drinking. What have you been seeing? It's been a huge problem. Both drugs and alcohol have have spiked. In fact, last week I read an article that said uh, more people uh, under the age of 65 have died from alcohol-related deaths than died from COVID during uh, the pandemic. And that's a huge increase from pre-COVID times. I think there's a lot of factors that are going on. We know that when stress is high, mm-hmm. uh, that people are more likely to turn to drugs and alcohol. Um, we know that when there's economic problems, particularly unemployment, that there's also an increase in suicides and drug and alcohol-related deaths. And um, so I think during COVID, there's been a lot of a lot of direct and indirect effects that have affected mental health and substance use disorders. So, of course, the actual stress and fear related to the virus itself, grief and loss, but then also more the indirect effects that are more related to shutdowns right. and um, and and people losing their jobs, people losing their businesses. Um, people being, you know, isolated, people being at home. Sometimes being at home could be welcome. Sometimes being at home just because of the normal stresses of family or because maybe the people you live with are abusive or violent. And now you're kind of trapped with them. So for all those reasons, I think people um, are trying to cope the best they can. And unfortunately, sometimes when when they're they're stressed, the the turning to alcohol, whether it's a new thing for someone or whether it's they used to have a problem with alcohol and uh, they've been able to um, recover and now they're relapsing because of the stress. Yeah, it sounds like it's just the perfect storm for something awful. I think if you if you don't have healthy coping mechanisms when you're stressed, like when you're stressed and you say, I need to grab for a drink and that's going to make me feel better, that's always not a good sign because we want healthy coping mechanisms because otherwise, you know, some people turn to food, some people turn to alcohol, some people turn to risky behaviors. And those are things that are just going to bring you more trouble over time. And I think what the thing about alcoholism, a lot of people don't realize is how much it affects your liver. Um, you know, I think there was a report that said that was 8,000 additional deaths um, from alcohol related to liver disease. So you're damaging your liver. Um, and that's why a lot of people end up uh, dying, not so much from withdrawal of alcohol. It's more so from the related um, consequences that the alcohol does to your body. Kind of the way I think about coping skills is that we all have this list in our minds, and mm-hmm. it may be conscious or semi-conscious or totally unconscious, but we have a list of go-to things we do when we're stressed. Yes. And when number one fails us, we go to number two. And when that fails us, we go to number three. And on all of our lists, somewhere on all of our lists is drugs, alcohol, suicide. Um, It might be number a thousand on your list, but it might be number three on my list. Right. And when, um, stress is higher, we tend to go down our list more. And there's healthy and unhealthy coping skills on all of our lists. But um, the more stressed we are, the more likely we are to burn through those healthy coping skills to get to those unhealthy coping skills. And then the other issue with the pandemic and the shutdowns 
is some of our healthy coping skills have been limited to yeah. us. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, going to the gym, um, going to church, mosque, synagogue, going out with friends, going and visiting um, your grandparent or parent at the nursing home. You know, those kinds of things um, that we we did, sports, all, all sorts of things that have been limited to us. So when those things are closed, but liquor stores, casinos, marijuana dispensaries are open, we turn to what's available to us to cope. Yeah, I think they said something like 54%. There was a 54% increase in the sales of alcohol during COVID. Uh, but you know what I wanted to talk about is that people are like, yeah, they might be listening and thinking, yeah, I just have one or two drinks. It's not really a problem. You know, I might have, you know, during the week. Can you define what heavy drinking is and what alcoholism is or having a problem? Because I think a lot of people don't realize that they may have a problem. One of the important things about substance use disorders is that there's no certain amount that determines that, ah, you have alcohol use disorder because you drink above this many drinks a week and you don't because you don't. But as far as at-risk drinking, drinking that puts someone at risk of eventually developing a problem, but doesn't necessarily mean they they do or that they ever will, we generally say um, above seven drinks a week for women and above 14 drinks a week for men. Okay. is when we really start having concerns. Um, people who drink less than that certainly have problems, and people who drink more than that sometimes don't have problems. That's one of the um, kind of benchmarks that's out there. That's like one drink a day a week or two days, a, a, two drinks a day for a gentleman versus a female. Um, yeah. I'm also thinking, though, what about the ability to stop? Because I know there are people that are like, uh, I don't really need a drink today, but then they still have one anyway. And uh, one of the tips that Jean was telling me was that if you are drinking every day and you can't stop, so like you tell yourself, I'm just not going to drink for two weeks. And then you find that a week and a half in, you're already drinking again, that you might be starting to have a problem. What do you think about that? That would be evidence of having withdrawal, which would indicate that you have a physiologic dependence to alcohol. But when we say problem, again, I, I, when I'm looking at um, whether someone has a substance use disorder, I'm not necessarily looking at the amounts. I might screen with the, number, with the amount to try to get a, a sense of what's going on. But what I'm really looking for is when we talk about abuse, we usually look at four things that mm-hmm. someone's drinking despite having one, of, one or more of these four problems. So the, the mnemonic is the four L's, livers, lovers, livelihood, and legal. Okay. And like so that. livers means you're drinking despite the medical problems that the, the, the alcohol is causing. Mm-hmm. You know you have hepatitis. You know you have... Elevated liver enzymes or... Or you know it's causing you um, to, you know, injuries. You've fallen because of it. You got in a car accident because of it. So it's causing you physical problems, yet you're continuing to use, even though you know it's connected to problems. Then there's lovers, so it's causing relationship problems. It Mm -hmm. might be romantic relationships, it might be friendships, but you're having problems and you continue to drink even though it's causing these problems. Livelihood, it's affecting your work or maybe your school and you continue to drink. You're showing up late, 
to work, um, you're showing up drunk, you've been suspended, you're getting in fights at work, those sorts of things. Um, and then legal, you continue to drink despite DUIs, MIPs, um, you know, uh, or if it's illegal drugs, you know, the, the, those sorts of things. Um, so those would be one example where like, where we're thinking this is this is a problem because it's causing problems in your life and you continue to drink despite those problems. Yeah, that I think that's a good indication that definitely you have a problem at this point. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's a lot of people that I'm seeing that are doing the heavy drinking that are maybe not quite at that point. And it's like, how do you intervene before it gets to that point? Any tips there? It's a very difficult conversation to have. Um, studies suggest that 97% of people with substance use disorders don't think they have a problem. Yeah, denial is a big thing. Absolutely. Denial, normalization, which might be cultural or might be in their family or maybe among their friends. It's like everybody drinks like this, right? Yeah. In our culture, we celebrate with alcohol. It's like you go for a drink sure. after work. Yeah, it's very common. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And, and, and most people who drink alcohol don't have a, a problem. Um, and that's part of the reason this is a hard conversation to have, because when you talk about prevention, mm -hmm. um, you know, someone might say, I don't have a problem. And we might say, yeah. And they might say, well, I, I've been drinking like this for years, decades, and they may never develop a problem. So it, it is hard. It's a sensitive conversation. It's hard. And um, I think education can be helpful, but also education. Sometimes the way we might educate um, may may lead someone to be very resistant or very defensive. Yeah. And so I think the most important tact we can take as clinicians or as friends or family members of people that we're concerned about is trying to listen and understand and trying to ask rather than tell. Yeah. Um, and and to, to really lower those defenses and make sure that it's clear that we're coming from a place of caring instead of judging. Yeah, I like that ask rather than tell, because a lot of times you just want to say, uh, stop drinking, or maybe you're drinking too much, but you know, maybe asking more about how do you feel or, you know, what are the reasons why? I, a lot of times with my patients that people have gained a lot of weight during the pandemic and they'll say, you know, they're drinking more. Um, and so sometimes I'll go down the route of, you know, do you feel healthy when you're drinking and, and talk about it from that angle. So let's pretend, okay, so we're talking now, we sort of identified like when, what it would look like if you might have a problem. So what, and kind of, we talked a little bit about what friends and family can sort of do, but what are some of the treatments? So let's say you, you realize it's time to seek help or people are telling you that it's time to seek help. What are the treatments that are available and what are the success rates of those treatments? The best way to treat any substance use disorder is comprehensively. There's usually not one magic bullet that will solve all problems. And there's different strokes for different folks. I, some things are going to work for some people and some things aren't going to work for others. Or sometimes it's all about timing. You know, there's people who've been in uh, rehab facilities 10, 20, 50 times um, before they finally um, enter recovery. And maybe it's just a combination of factors. They needed a, a certain time in their life or things that things got really bad, or maybe it was just the right clinician that they had, you know, all sorts of different things that, that, that happen. Um, but I, I always like to say that I try to 
throw as many solutions at a problem as possible and I try to see what sticks and I try to give as many options as possible to to the, the people I'm caring for. So first and foremost, I think the important thing is is uh, is some sort of support, whether that's um, psychotherapy one on one with a, with a trained therapist or a group therapy, mm-hmm. or is it a support group? like a 12-step program, or there's lots of other different kinds of recovery programs. And, and and this is also something that a lot of times people say, oh, I did AA once yeah, and I, I don't like it. Well, um, there's a lot of different AA groups out there and different people have different philosophies. And just because you didn't mesh well with one doesn't mean you might not with another. And there's other kinds of support groups besides AA too. Okay. Um, but we know that people who go through all 12 steps have very, very high success rate. It's just a lot of people don't go through the steps. They don't work it the, the work uh, work it the way it's really um, designed to be, or they don't do it with a sponsor, those sorts of things. Because it sounds difficult and you need a lot of support and you need a lot of motivation. And if you don't have the right support or motivation, it's going to be difficult to go through those, those steps. And uh, people have a lot of shame. People have a lot of fear. Uh, people feel denial. And I think those are all barriers to being successful. So you're saying that it's, first of all, you know, get a therapist. Second of all, maybe enroll in some type of program that involves coaching or group therapy, um, a 12-step program. Let's say someone has been drinking heavily and they want to stop, uh, but they stop and they start getting the withdrawal symptoms of tremors and feeling nauseated. Then what do they do? There's two kinds of withdrawal. There's complicated withdrawal and there's uncomplicated withdrawal. Mm-hmm. So complicated withdrawal is where we're worried about life, uh, about someone's life, because you can die from alcohol withdrawal. And um, the big signs that we're concerned about there are alcohol withdrawal seizures. Yeah alcohol withdrawal hallucinations or hallucinosis and alcohol withdrawal delirium, which is commonly called delirium tremens or DTs, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people misuse that term. What delirium tremens means, um, people tend to focus on the tremors of it, Mm -hmm. but what it really means is you are confused. You don't know where you are or you don't know who you are. So scary. and and your kind of your consciousness is kind of in and out, and you're fluc- you're you're alert, and then you're kind of stuporous, and and uh, people can't arouse you, those sorts of things. And that's when we're really concerned about um, death. And and so if someone has a history of any of that in the past, if they have a history of a seizure disorder, even if it wasn't alcohol related, mm-hmm. or if they're showing signs of that now, that's when we really think that people should be doing their withdrawal in a facility, in a medical facility. So going to an emergency room um, or going to a a rehabilitation center directly. detox program. Right. But sometimes that's easier said than done. Sometimes those are very difficult to find or they're expensive. But um, often going to the nearest emergency room is is, is the best, best place to start, especially if you aren't aware of the resources that are out there. What are your thoughts about recovery houses and people getting into recovery homes? So let's say you detox and instead of going home to where it's all the same environment and the same stressors, going somewhere else. At Beaumont, we have several programs at several of our hospitals 
where we try not to just send people home okay. after detox, try to make sure that they have follow-up without patient care or they have a residential facility to go to. There are group homes out there, but th that is also sometimes difficult to get into, difficult to find. Um, but there, it, it, there's pros and cons to all of those things, and it really depends on the situation for each person. Sometimes someone can't just be away from work days, weeks on end. So you're trying to balance the risk of them losing their job, which might put them at higher risk of using right. drugs and alcohol with we really need to take this seriously and really need to kind of change the environment, as you said, and, and, and figure out how to make sure there's as much support in their life as possible and as little temptation in their life, especially in this early time yeah. when the risk of relapse is so high. It sounds so, just so frustrating. It's such a complex problem. And I really feel for people that are going through it and for friends and family that are trying to support people it can be really isolating. Um, and that's why I'm so so much about like, let's try to prevent it before it gets to that point. But I know that it, it's a delicate balance of people thinking they can handle it and those that um, may not be able to. Right. I think the, the important thing with pr prevention or with just kind of working, rolling with people who are in denial is um, finding out what their goals are mm. um, and trying to align with their goal. Because maybe their goal isn't to quit drinking, Yeah. but maybe their goal is to have a better marriage. Yes. Okay. And, you know, and the alcohol is affecting their marriage. Mm -hmm. Or maybe their goal is to get promoted at work and alcohol is affecting their work. Or maybe their goal is to not have an upset stomach every day and be in pain and maybe alcohol is related to that. And so trying to, um, rather than thrust our goals on people, yeah. which is really hard not to do as a clinician, especially when it's in a family member, when it's so obvious to you that this is a problem, Yeah. Um, focusing on what they're looking for, what their goal is, and maybe trying to help figure out with the person, is this Alcohol, is this drug impairing your ability to achieve your goals and get the things you say you want? And if so, what do we do about that? And that's that's one way we can really align with people and try to um, be on the same page. Because if if they're coming in and they're totally, totally focused on, you know, losing weight or having a better relationship or not being in pain, and we're constantly talking about, well, you got to quit drugs, you got to quit alcohol, you got to quit smoking, yeah. they're going to be like, why don't you why aren't you listening to me got it that's not what i want yeah that that's that was such an important point i think aligning with people's goals is a fantastic way to kind of really dig deep at maybe even the reasons why people might be turning um to alcohol and as gene was saying a lot of people turn to drinking because they're in pain um they're suffering yeah. and they just want it to stop or they just feel like they they need an out. And so it could be just lifestyle coping mechanisms. And like we said, with the pandemic, it's been really hard. Like there's so many things going on in the world that is very hard. Um, and so it, it takes a lot of steps for people to really look into healthier coping mechanisms. Can you name a couple of healthy coping mechanisms for people? So if you're super stressed, what are some things that people can do as opposed to you know, reaching for a drink? I've heard the uh, uh, quote said before that exercise is the most underutilized antidepressant uh -huh. and food is the most overutilized antidepressant. Yes. Um, so exercise is really a, a great coping skill that people can use to help them be mentally and physically healthy 
and it actually increases your stress tolerance. It actually increases your pain tolerance. Um, so exercise is a really important coping skill and a good way to get out stress too, um, uh, acutely. Other coping skills are, are maybe social, is talking to a trusted friend or loved one and trying to maybe do enjoyable activities together, those sorts of things. Um, distraction. Distraction can be a double-edged sword, but um, you know, if we do too much distraction and too much escapism, then that that you know that can impair our functioning in the world. And sometimes, uh, you know, we're often using people are often using drugs and alcohol as a distraction or right. as a way to escape. Um, but finding healthy things to distract from, maybe uh, you know, a mild amount of TV, house projects, crafts. You know, but the important thing is to, it should be enjoyable. For some people, right. they love doing house projects and some people, this is like, oh, it's this is working. Enough. Yeah, you I'm know? getting my basement so, done right now. It's like a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's finding the right things for, for right people. Other important things, um, you know, breathing. Breathing is a really important coping skill. And there's, um, it, people can look it up if they, you know, do an online search for four square breathing. You breathe in for four seconds, you hold it for four seconds, you breathe out for four seconds, you hold it for four seconds, and you just do it over and over and over and over. And it's amazing. It sounds so simple and it sounds hokey, but you do that and your um, physiologically and psychologically, your body calms down yeah. uh, by doing that. We talked about exercise, but on the other side is, is food and eating healthy. Um, not eating too much and not eating too little. And when people get stressed, depressed, anxious, some people eat too much, some people eat too little, and neither are good. They're Both things are going to fuel the problem. But a lot of times what we turn to is just eating lots of carbs. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're missing nutrients and, and healthy fatty acids and, um, you know, things that are important for our body and our brain fighting stress and fighting pain. And then finally, I would say sleep. Um, sleep is, is, I mean, how many people are getting eight hours of sleep every night? Um, Not me. <laughs> many people are getting too little or too much. And really, with the human body, the human brain, we need eight hours in a dark, quiet space. That means no cell phones flashing, no TVs flashing, mm -hmm. no radios. Um, because even people who say, I need that to fall asleep. Well, it, it may may help you fall asleep, but it's going to keep you from getting that deep, restful sleep, those deep stage sleep. And that's what makes us feel refreshed in the morning and restored and helps our pain go away and helps be um, more, uh, have a higher stress tolerance and, and all of those things. So um, those things are a, a lot of things we can do to both cope and prevent uh, stress and turning to unhealthy coping skills. I want to switch back a little bit to treatment. So many people are looking to their doctors for prescriptions to help them to stop drinking. Are prescriptions the way to go? Or I know you said it's different for every person, but just what are some of those that they could potentially ask for to help uh, with the stop drinking? Medicine is definitely effective and definitely important. And I prescribe it um, uh, to, to patients with substance use disorders all the time. Um, the important part, though, is it's got to be part of a comprehensive treatment plan. 
I rarely see people get better with medicine alone. Mm -hmm. So having that medicine plus a therapist and or a group therapy and or a 12-step support program and or peer support, those sorts of things. But as far as the the medicines that are effective for for alcohol use disorder, um, uh, naltrexone Mm -hmm. is a medicine that's also prescribed for opioid use disorders and for um, for overeating. And so what naltrexone does is it um, it affects the reward center of our brain and helps decrease our cravings for unhealthy reward stimulants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sex, drugs, alcohol, food, all stimulate our reward center. Right. And so that's part of the reason this helps for a lot of different addictions. Um, and then there is a campersate. A campersate is specific for people with alcohol use disorder. And what that does is it helps stabilize some of the chemicals in our brain that um, cause withdrawal. Okay. So um, when alcohol is a neurodepressant, a neuroinhibitor, it depresses our brain. That's part of the reason it increases depression and suicidality, even though people sometimes drink to help their depression, right. it actually it's a depressant. It. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a depressant. And so, but when we have so much alcohol in our system for so long, that's been depressing activity, our brain reacts by creating more stimulants, mm-hmm. by creating more glutamate is, is the big one in our brain. And then when you take away the alcohol and you have all this unopposed glutamate, that's what causes seizures and hallucinations mm. and delirium. So what, what a campersate does is that helps kind of balance the inhibition and the stimulation in our brain. And so we don't, the withdrawal isn't as, as serious, severe, those cravings aren't as severe, those sorts of things. And then the, the, the third and, and final one is disulfiram, um, which is a medicine that is actually aversive therapy. In fact, it's the only aversive therapy I know of that's FDA approved. Mm-hmm. And so this is a medicine you take um, every day. And if you drink, you're going to get very sick. Makes you feel nauseated, right? Like Feel nauseated. You might get a rash. Um, you're you're going to feel ill. Yeah. This is a medicine that can be really helpful for some people as a deterrent. But it's also a dangerous medicine because mm-hmm. sometimes... People who have alcohol use disorder are kind of thrill seekers, and I've had people intentionally test it. Oh no! Um, it can, it can, it can. You can actually die from the combination. Oh jeez! So it is important that it's the right patient, and the and and there there there's enough education. They understand what's going on, and also that they don't use like alcohol-based mouthwash or alcohol-based aftershave because they can. That can also trigger the symptoms. Um, but I have also seen this medication work wonders for people. Some people need those medicines that more reduce their cravings or make the withdrawal a little less severe. Some people need that deterrent. Yeah. Dif- yeah. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah. It's, it, again, it sounds like such a complex problem. And I think it just, it needs a lot of um, focus. It needs a lot of attention. It needs a lot of patience. So um, any last advice for anyone who might be struggling with alcohol or someone that you might suspect has a problem? What kind of advice would you give people? I would say people use substances for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. 
Um, some people may be, quote, self-medicating um, for depression, for anxiety. Trauma is a big um, risk factor for substance use disorders. In fact, 50% of people with substance use disorders also have PTSD. Yeah, or even grief. A lot of people who've lost family members and friends. Absolutely. And so just getting, quote, clean might not necessarily solve the problem. And that's why it's so important to not just try to go cold turkey or not just seek medicine to try to fight this. Sometimes those things work, but the the chance of going, quote, cold turkey, when you just stop on your own with nothing, the risk of relapse is about 95% within a year. Okay. So the best thing you can do is make sure we are, you have that support, you have the therapy, you have the medicine, you have that comprehensive treatment, but then you're also looking at the underlying drivers of the substance use and make sure you're getting support, whether it's medicine, therapy, whatever, for that depression, for that anxiety, for the trauma, for those sorts of things, because that's, that's going to help you not need to turn to the drugs and alcohol as much at least for those people who are who are using it to self-medicate or cope with the underlying problem. What's a go-to resource for someone that might feel like, yeah, maybe I have a problem? There's a great resource about that that uh, for really all mental health concerns, including substance use disorders, the, the National Alliance of Mental Illness uh, mm-hmm. has a great website with a lot of um, different uh, resources and handouts. Um, that that um, people are concerned about themselves or their loved ones or clinicians can go to. Okay. There's also the SAMHSA website. That's oh, yeah, S- I love that one. Yeah. Yeah, S-A-M-H-S-A, and that's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. There's a lot of resources there. SAMHSA's great. They've got all sorts of things at a very like, normal reading level. It's not like high-tech medical They've got support groups. They've got a podcast you can listen to. They've got videos you can watch. They have definitions. I think that that's one of my favorite resources. Thanks for sharing that one. Yeah. And then finally, I would just say locally, um, I, I, I work for Easter Seals and EasterSealsMichigan.com um, has a lot, has free anonymous screenings mm-hmm. um, for, you can take one specific for drugs or alcohol. Um, or you can take a more comprehensive one for depression, anxiety, substance use, all sorts of things. And at the end of those, um, there's a list of resources. And those are totally anonymous. So, so it's no like an gonna... online, almost like a test, online test yeah. or, that you can take to see like, ooh, maybe I'm in, I'm in trouble. Yeah. And so it's five to 10 minutes and you can take it or put information about a loved one in it to see if, mm-hmm. if you know, they're... Do, are they showing these signs? And then at the end, there's resources locally and nationally that people can can use that's yep. all on there free. And then Jean had also mentioned when we were talking about the local police stations, um, actually, I think in Macomb County and Oakland County, they do have a program that if you are having trouble or drinking or feel unsafe, you can go to the local police station and they can help you um, connect with resources um, without having any consequences of um getting in trouble with the law. So I thought that was kind of a neat thing as well. It's really amazing. There are so many resources out there, government resources, nonprofit resources, um, hospitals, clinics, 
Um, it, it's just sometimes it's so hard to like, get in. It's so hard to get in. Like you call these numbers. A lot of times they don't work or they don't take your insurance. And it's like for people that are not maybe like on the fence of trying to get help, it's really hard to get the right resources and to be able for it to work for you. So I, I feel for people that are trying to get help because sometimes it just seems like a lot of doors are closed. And then when doors are closed, you just go back to drinking. Right. And, th- and you know, this is the hard part. There's so many resources out there. Uh-huh. A lot of times people don't know about them. Yeah. Or the ones they know about or the first few they try have huge wait lists or you mm-hmm. can't get in or they don't qualify. Um, the other resource people can go to is every county in the whole United States has a community mental health, public mental health system. Mm -hmm. And so in Oakland County, for example, it's um, OCHN, um, it's Oakland Community Health Network. And going to their website or calling, they can refer, depending on what you're looking for, um, to to different places. Um, And and then a lot of times they don't provide services themselves, but they will help be the navigators. Um, yeah, the the and help direct people to nonprofits like Easter Seals that see everybody regardless of their ability to pay. Okay. So you know, there's there, whether someone has insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, or are uninsured, there are organizations out there to help people. Wonderful. And I I, I know I talked about twelve steps earlier, but I I should know. AA, the 12-step programs are free, mm-hmm. and um, studies show that 90 meetings in 90 days is just as effective to going to a residential rehabilitation center. Wow. So, you know, one costs money and one's free, Yeah, and you can amazing. do it on your own time. So it's something to consider. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, and thank you for all that you do. Uh, I know especially with the pandemic, you know, psychiatric care is, is very difficult. And, you know, thank you for your service and for your uh, ability to be there for patients. And thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for being with us today. And it was such a heartbreaking conversation and great resources um, and advice that you've gave Dr. Ganey and Jean for your personal story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. We leave you today with this healthy thought. During the pandemic, so many people have been picking up really bad coping mechanisms. And what it is, is we're all hurting. We're all having a difficult time through this pandemic, whether it be through actually getting COVID, losing people through COVID, really being stuck at home, not being able to do the things that we've always wanted to do and imagined ourselves doing. We're just in a tough spot and everyone's struggling in their own way. And with the uptick of people drinking alcohol, we see it as such a huge problem, not only for our mental health, but our physical health. And we really just wanna help you out today. If you or your loved one is struggling with alcohol consumption, there is help out there. And as Jean said, it all starts with just the first step. You can beat this illness and the stigma around it by putting yourself first. Help is out there. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.